Lord, we thank you again for your word. We know your word quite well, and we ask you to plant that word deeper in our spirits so that that word would transform the way we live and how we see life and how we live life. So we bless you that you are the God who does not only speak to us, but that you equip us, you work in us to accomplish that about which you speak. So may your word live for us today, that we might live for you tomorrow, in Jesus' name. Amen. I spent some time this week living with Paul. It's quite a moving experience, actually. Uh, reflecting on what being a Christian meant for these guys in the first century and what it means for me. I just actually don't think it's any comparison at all. And I wonder sometimes if I'd be a Christian at all. Because the word of Jesus in those early days changed lives and also ended lives. It was so deeply real and the costs were so deeply real and also the joy was so deeply real. For them, it seems, and I don't believe in romanticizing history, I think they were people like you and me, They had to wrestle to learn how this Jesus who rose from the dead uh, was the most important and meaningful core of their lives and beings. And if you've grown up like I've grown up, you know, the Christian message and gospel is a kind of part of my life. But I grew up hearing, that's cool, John, but in the real world, you've got to get a job. In the real world, you've got to do this. In the real world, you've got to do that. And so Christianity was the unreal world that would sort of tack on when you've taken care of business. And yet Jesus and Paul seem to say, well, taking care of business is actually turning it the other way around. So Paul's in the church in Philippi And he's responded years ago to a a vision uh, to go to Macedonia and he plants a church there. You remember he goes to a river where they gather and uh, he meets a woman named Lydia who gets converted and she's quite an important businesswoman in the area and they plant a church in Philippi. And this letter to the Philippians is written around AD 64, about four years probably before Paul died. And he's been in Rome. I'm not sure whether he ever knew when he was going to actually die or not. Although when he, you read his words in 2 Timothy, that was written four years later and it was just before he died. And he says in 2 Timothy, I'm, I'm ready to die. I've, written, I've, I've run the race and I'm, I'm prepared for what lies ahead. But chains in a dungeon with a little lamp, oil lamp, day after day, year after year, or month after month. It's not a it's not a easy circumstance. 
what I'm battling with is just how much everything else impacts who I am. And when it really, when the rubber hits the road, what I wrestle with is how much does Jesus actually make a difference? And why? And what does that mean? Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In Ephesians, he talks about being an ambassador in chains. There's a clue there, I think. What do you think the clue is? See, if I was in chains, I probably would have written to the Ephesians and said, where the heck are you? I mean, you know what it's like in here. I counted five mice last night and they smacked me a lot and their food's lousy. There's nothing of that in those letters. And these chains are painful, they're heavy. But Paul takes the chains and he holds them up and he says, um, I'm an ambassador in chains. This is a badge of honor. I'm so flattered that I would be chained up for my friendship with Jesus. It is so cool. I wish you were here with me. And he's not speaking eloquent rhetoric. That appeals to me. I admire that. I want that. Because I'm tired of the whining self that complains all the time about everything. If not out loud in my spirit. Continually saying, why God? Why God? Why God? It's not fair God. And I look at Paul in the dungeon and I go, oh John, you know nothing. So I'm moved by that and challenged by that. And he says in one, chapter, chapter 1 verse 15, my eyes are going too, but I'm not complaining. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What he's saying is, there are those who are calling themselves Christians who are basically um, undermining me while I'm in chains. And there are others who are supporting me. But I love his response, which he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. He goes, really, it's their problem, not mine. Because one of the things Satan will do with us all the time is just point each other out and say, you know what they're doing, you know what they've said, you know what they've... And he'll just keep us there for the rest of our lives. Some of us know what that's like, we've been there. Or we live a life that says, when this is sorted out, then I'll be able to 
say yes to Jesus more fully. When this then, some of us have, might have been saying that for 20 years, we might know that we actually don't mean it anyway. But I believe the only reason we say that is because we don't really know Jesus. Because I think for all of us, if we actually really were face to face with Jesus, and we really knew the living God in all his fullness as Paul met him, we probably would say, you can have it. We probably would be so in touch with the truth and the reality of who, what life is about that we'll say, whatever you need, here I am. But at this point, we sort of got two dates at the door and we're not too sure who to go out with. So we hedge our bets and we date them both each during the week. And our hearts are really mixed up. And so we're really lukewarm and we kind of want to be better but we're scared of taking the risk or making the jump or saying no to the other one because they're quite good looking too. And so we are of all people in the Bible most to be pitied because we're kind of not passionate about anything. So Paul, there's nothing like death to get your priorities sorted out. And it's actually quite interesting sitting with people when they die or going meeting people at the face of death. Because you find out where life has been invested. It's no fun taking funerals where there's no investment. Because you see at death, you don't take anything. So it really doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees. It doesn't matter what you've done. The only thing that matters at death is who are you? What have you become? And the funerals I've taken where I've wanted to say, why don't you just talk among yourselves for half an hour and then I'll come back and shake your hand. Because this, I'm not being cruel to you, but this is the logical, this is the logical end of the decisions you've made and the attitudes you've had, so asking me to make it go away won't work. You said you didn't believe in God, so I guess you're stuck right now. Have a party. And that's what some people do. But Paul seemed to go to prison for something more than that. He said, you know, there's much more to life than that, and that's why I'm willing to suffer. And that's why these, um, these chains are like a, the mayor's medallion hanging around my neck. I'm so proud of it, and I'll do it for you, because I want you to know that you don't have to be there. And that old hag at the door who's trying to seduce you into another life is, is, is that. She's just a hag. So he's in crisis. He's got critics. He's facing death. Somebody said, uh, are you a thermostat or a thermometer? How do you live your life? Is a thermostat or a thermometer? 
A thermometer reflects the present situation and just reads the temperature, whatever it is. A thermostat controls the conditions and doesn't react to everything in a, in a, in a reactionary way. And what we're really talking about this morning is how do we live our lives day by day and what impacts our lives day by day and what is the bedrock of our lives. How much are we, get, are we uh, impacted by our circumstances and how much are we impacted by our relationship with Jesus? Because the bottom line is the relationship with Jesus is the rock that does not change in the midst of everything else that does change. So it's really easy to know what holds us or where our security is. And basically the whole of life is about learning how to stand on that rock. So I don't think, I get quite irritated by this, I don't like having to make this statement and declare it to you, but I guess I, I have to live it so you have to. And that is, I don't think God's that fussed by our circumstances half the time, which I find quite irritating. Because I think he's actually saying, well, I'm not going to take you out of the circumstance. It's the very thing I'm going to teach you in. I'm tired of you. You're so childish. Grow up. I told you I'd look after you. Now you're going to be in a place where you're going to have to trust me. And you'll notice from the books you read and the people you meet that the people who've got real strong faith are people who've gone through circumstances. Weak faith doesn't grow in comfort. It's just the way it is. Darn it. There's an author who said, wherever you are, there you are. And I laughed about that for weeks because it was so stupid. Wherever you are, there you are. Now you can also say, wherever you are, there he is. Meaning Jesus. See, the secret of contentment is ultimately us, isn't it? The secret of contentment is rooted in who we are and who we see ourselves to be and who we know Jesus to be for us. Period. And you could have taken Paul, I believe, and put him in any circumstance and he probably would say, isn't this cool? Beat me again for Jesus. Love each other. I trust him for my future. But, what did he say? In Philippians 4, isn't this exciting? Don't you think? Doesn't it exciting to know that you're going to be set free from being dependent on your circumstances and that you're increasingly being set free to be a place of stillness and life in the midst of whatever the nonsense is in the world and people are going to come to you and drink from the nectar of your spirit because you're going to be so deep and rich and peaceful? You are excited about that, right? That's why we need God's spirit because we can't do it without him. And under that hum of anticipation, we carry on. What a, where was I now? Oh, I was going to talk about cows chewing. Um, 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need, but I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So what do we get from that? We get from that that Paul says, I have learned, which means he didn't always have it quite so cool. That like you and me, he probably got pretty ticked off and he probably got pretty angry. And we know he got angry. He was an angry man. When he, when he watched Stephen being stoned, he was an angry man with an agenda. And then he was struck blind and he spent a long time, 14 years, out of the public eye with God dealing with him and him growing in relationship with Jesus. 14 years. See, one of our problems, I believe, is that we want quick things. We want God to work and we want God to, be, to use us, but we won't let him get at our characters. And so the way we keep him away from our characters is we just blame everybody. And so we don't grow, we never grow up, we just blame. And we blame and excuse, and we kind of don't get it that God's actually saying, I'm answering your prayers, this is the answer, sweetheart. What do you mean? The circumstance is still awful. Yeah, so will you. Well, what are you teaching me? Well, you said that you love me and you're going to die to yourself. So drop dead. You said you have no rights because Jesus lives in you. Whatever you want to use me for, Lord. And he says, I'm trying to, but I can't get in there. You've got so many issues and so many agendas and so many qualifications and so many buts and ifs and ands and what, and it's not fair. We've been stuck here for years. This is the, I think this is the gospel. It's not just me being difficult this morning. It'll be difficult every morning. <laughs> but I honestly think part of the reason we don't have a huge impact in the world is because we haven't learnt this stuff very well. So we have to lighten up on one level and understand how much we need to grow up. And we also have to come to a place where the Lord sets us free to say, look, whatever the circumstances, He is Lord. And I'm going to worship Him. And I'm going to give up on this idea that I'm ever going to find this Shangri-La on earth because it's not going to happen. And I'm going to give up on this idea that I'm ever going to find this incredible circumstance where everything is going to be beautiful. And then I can be fully who I'm meant to be. It's not going to happen. This is it. This is as good as it gets. I've said this thousands of This is it. This is heaven on earth. In the widest world, this is heaven on earth. Port Alberni is heaven on earth. If we can't get it right in Port Alberni, you won't get it right anywhere else. Certainly, Africa's got enough problems. Leave them alone. Don't go over there. But the reason we, we get moved by the micas who come here is because they've learned something of what Paul's talking about. More than most of us have. And God's saying, I think to us, look, I'll teach you the same stuff if you just let me get in. Could have dialed down on the excuses and, and dial up on obedience. So what was that about the cow? I have learned to be content in all circumstances is not like the picture of a, chow, a cow chewing, you know, its cud sitting in a pasture somewhere, which is a picture of passivity. Contentment is not about 
I have learned to just be passive. It's, learned, it's, it's about, I have learned how to live in the here and now with acceptance and contentment in the midst of chaos or unresolved stuff. That's the power of the gospel. I will trust God with my circumstances, even if, you remember when David Shadbolt came and said, you walk into a room and it's, you're told it's white and it's black. And he says, you just keep saying that this is a white room. God has declared this is a white room. Well, it's sort of like that. It's, Jesus, you are Lord, irrespective of what I see and experience right now. So what's that about? How do you learn to live content in the midst of circumstances that will never be ideal and sometimes will be very far from ideal? How do you face the most difficult or terrifying fears of your life and know the peace of Jesus in the midst of that? It's an easy answer. You hang around with Jesus, you make friends with him, and he says, I will be your rock and refuge, and I will be your fortress, and I will be your companion, and I will be with you for the rest of your life. But it spends the rest of our life working that relationship out. So Paul says, I'll learn to be content, which is the opposite of discontent. Now, Port Alberni was not the only place where people are discontent. We read in the beginning of the scriptures, Eden was the most perfect place. Everything was beautiful. You know, the, the trees and the sun and... I wasn't there. Just perfect. And there was one rule which was, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, Adam and Eve get fixated on that bit and they tempted into breaking that rule which tells you that perfect circumstances would also lead us to somewhere where we would find some reason because of the, 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 the reality of evil in a perfect circumstance Satan can come and say God doesn't really mean this you're missing out this isn't as perfect as you think. And it all falls apart. That's why we're doing the Jesus ministry. Because wherever our circumstances, we have this battle between good and evil that meets in each of us. And we have decisions to make about who we follow. And contentment is about how we respond to those whispers. So quickly, Paul says in four, chapter, four, of chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. What's that about? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard with your, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I guess what he's saying there when he's saying, you know, if you can't control the circumstances too much, I guess all you can control is yourself. And all you can respond to is the presence of God with you in those circumstances because he's promised that. So what I do, says Paul, is I rejoice. 
And I start with rejoicing that, you remember he sang in prison with Silas. I mean, he had some weird things he does. And he's a, he was apparently quite a funny looking guy. I mean, a hooked nose, balding and sort of bow-legged. He wasn't an attractive man like Fred. He was, he, you know, he was, he was just sort of... Um, but his presence was apparently something quite amazing. You know, uh, he was... And I can imagine this funny little character singing in prison. And saying, why are you rejoicing? He says, well, God loves me. So? Well, he loves me. And this is all the best you can do to stop me being loved by God is, I mean, kill me then. Torture me if you want. But he loves me and I'm not actually living, this is just my temporary quarters anyway. I'm going to a much better place and that's the reality in which I live right now. So really I don't need a lot. And there's something enormously powerful about a man who will not be bowed by the circumstances in which he lives. Why do you think the greatest funeral that will take place on this earth will happen in the next 10 years? It will move people to tears. You know who that's going to be? It will be the funeral of Nelson Mandela. Because he spent 30 years five miles from my house in a totally, totally different circumstance. He spent 10 year, 30 years, 28 years on an island in Table Bay. Well, no, it wasn't 28 years. It was a long time on that island and then he was taken to a, a prison uh, house. But um, it would be, it's, it's a place that has one of the most stunning views you would ever imagine. The beauty of the place is incredible. It has a, it a, you, you know, you see the picture postcards of Cape Town or Table Mountain, and, and that's his view. But on that island, he's kept a little cell, and he chops stones for 28 years. And he comes out and he speaks of peace, because he's learned in prison what other presidents haven't learned in luxury. There's something that happens in those places that speaks more of diamonds and gold. And that's what God's after. So he says, I rejoice. I rejoice because I'm content. And I'm content because I do not strive. And I do not strive because I accept that God is faithful wherever I am. How many of you would stay in a tent in winter for a month if you knew that you could live in a mansion for the rest of your life? How many of you would live in a trailer for a year if it earned you a ranch for the rest of your life? I'm grabbing for examples of what Paul is doing, which is life is way beyond this one. This is the prison camp. So I don't mind living in a tent. 
because the future is going to be something far more glorious and I'm taking that seriously. We are so seduced that we actually live this life as if it's all there is. And so we're paranoid about this life. So it's all about how much do you earn, when you're going to retire, how am I going to do, where are you going for your holidays. It's all about me, me, me. And I've been grappling with this over the last few years. Lord, you know, what do I do? How do I do this? And there's a deep part of, I mean, most of me is not very refined and I'm struggling with it. But there's another part that goes, I want to be like Paul. I want to say it doesn't matter. I want to say it doesn't matter. Because the Lord's already given me a picture that I'm still struggling to really believe about. I have resources, don't worry about it. It feels right. But to grow into it is the challenge. So I, I wrote down a couple of things, which is really that Paul's secret to contentment would be his trust in the Lord, his trust in the faithfulness of the Lord, and his acceptance of the circumstances that arise out of his following the Lord. And what he did was continually take his circumstances and just turn them around and say that whatever happens to me, I'm trusting that God will use this to, to speak of himself. And so, in fact, half the Bible comes out of his prison years. A little old man in a hole in the ground, chained, writes the foundation documents for the Christian faith for the next 2,000 years without a computer, with a feather and a piece of parchment maybe somebody to speak to and I have the audacity to say Lord you know if I can get this and this and this then I can serve you and he must just smile and groan and go you haven't got any idea I will use you when you least expect it and I'd rather use you without a microphone and without all the technology so I want to teach you how to be content and I'm going to teach you how to be content by allowing you to be in places that cause you to be discontented and you're going to be in those discontented times and places until you learn to be contented which means it could be the rest of your life because contentment comes out of me and that's why I told my disciples you need my spirit Paul is well known for he converted half the people who were chained to him because he said the gospel isn't in chains and so he took a situation that could have left him in despair and he used it as an opportunity so where are you this morning where are you with the Lord where are you in your attitudes? What are you complaining about? What are you saying, Lord, you don't hear me if you just changed this? And what would it be like for you to hear with me today God saying, I'm tired of listening to you. 
talking about everyone else and everything around you. I want to talk to you and I want you to allow me to draw close to you. Let's work on what you can control. Let's work on who you are with me and out of that place we will move outward. I'm not going to change everyone else. Everyone else will have to come to me and I'll change them. But I want to work with you. I love you. I accept you. I know how you struggle. I know your incompleteness. But that's where we have to learn contentment. You see, for the Lord, I believe, it's a hugely generous and loving gift where he just says to us, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yes, but we want to add. And he just goes, I know. Now be still. But I know. Do something, Lord. I am. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do something else, Lord. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who lives in me. Meaning I can do all things that is required in that circumstance in which I am through Christ who lives in me. So Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us to bring about a contentment and a joy that is you working in us beyond our understanding. As Paul says, that we would receive a peace that is beyond understanding. We pray that you will guard our hearts and minds and that Father in this very moment your spirit will encourage us with the knowledge that your presence in our lives right now today is enough to face whatever circumstances we're in. And so we just ask you as we pray now that your spirit uh, will meet us and lead us into a place of peace and contentment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs. We're going to just sing them together, but as part of our praying, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think it's a heck of a lot of help hearing stuff. It's much more helpful receiving it inside. And it's not a teasing. God doesn't tease us by saying, well, let me tell you about Paul and then make you feel guilty because you feel so pathetic. It's more 
an invitation to say, do you realize that that which I did in Paul, locked up in a dungeon, I can do in you, locked up in Port Alberni? If you want me to. The only part that's important or that, that we have to play is that God doesn't just do it. Paul had to walk with the Lord and make an effort as well. And we have to walk with the Lord and make it effort as well. He's not just going to do this stuff. So the reason we're singing the songs is to meditate on some of the essence of what we've been talking about. But they're also uh, an opportunity to just talk to the Lord ourselves about where maybe we're not feeling at peace or where we're feeling um, unsettled and say, Jesus, I just want to bring this to you and I want to thank you that you are present for me here today. And I ask you to forgive me where I've taken my eyes off you. I've asked you to forgive me where I've started cursing these chains and I've got so angry and I feel so unfair. You know, you know the story. And just bring it to his cross again and say, Lord, I just ask you to teach me something of what you taught Paul about how to be content in all the fragmentation of life. That I might rejoice in the midst of it. Not because I like it, but because it's better than being miserable. And it's also, I can't do much about some things. I might be able to do things about others, but I, I can't control everything. I think uh, because we've been sitting a long time, it's time we stood up. And standing up also means we're going to be sort of proactive and and it's a uh, and just uh, use this time however you want. Faithful one, so unchanging. Ageless one, you're my Of trouble, you lift me.
Receive the strength of the Lord, the Christ in you that can do all things. He can't come in and he won't come in through closed doors. He won't come in through conditions. He will come in through the cross. He'll come in through repentance. He'll come in through, Lord, forgive me. And Lord, I give you control. He won't come any other way. And we can spend years and years and years negotiating and he won't do it. And it's not about him not loving. It's about us being stubborn. The Lord so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him will have an everlasting life. That breaks the power of sin. That breaks the power of evil. That breaks the chains of evil. And there's no other way. That's what Paul found out. You, O oh Lord, are a safe place to be. You, O oh Lord, are a safe place for me. You calm my heart and you take all my fears. You draw me near with your love. You draw me near. You draw me near with your love. You draw me near. You, O oh Lord, are a safe place to be. You, O oh Lord, are a safe place for me. You calm my heart and you take all my fears. You draw me near with your love. You draw me near. You draw me near with your love. You draw me near. You should be my father and I should be your child. Beloved by your side, in mercy reconciled. It's a wonder, it's a glory, it's a joy to be told. 
abiding in your love. You, oh Lord, are a safe place to be. You, oh Lord, are a safe place for me. Like a mighty river from your heart to mine. Let your spirit flow, Lord, in your love. Let it flow. Let your spirit flow, Lord, in your love. Let it flow. If you should be my father, and I should be your child. Beloved by your side, in mercy reconciled. It's a wonder, it's a glory, it's a joy to be told. Abiding in your love, abiding in your love, oh Lord, abiding in your love, abiding love, abiding in your love, Lord, abiding, abiding in your love, it's a safe place to be, abiding in your love, Jesus, the only place for me. Abiding in your love, abiding.